Welcome to the Future Learning Design Podcast. That is where we need to be a little bit more careful, especially with startups that often have the mentality that they are reinventing the whole education system and scale very quickly without necessarily looking at what others have done and what mistakes others have made and also at the literature, you know. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me for this episode. My name is Tim Logan and the podcast is brought to you in partnership with Notosh. After my recent conversation in episode 133 with Jared Cooney Horvath, where he laid out his case as to why the EdTech revolution has categorically failed, it was fascinating this week to be able to chat with Natalia Kurchikova. She takes a more pragmatic stance of working with EdTech founders to hold themselves accountable to higher standards of research and impact evaluation. Natalia is the Professor of Reading and Early Childhood Development at the University of Stavanger in Norway. She researches children's use of media and technologies and is especially interested in children's use of ebooks and literacy apps. Her latest project, Sensory Books, is about reading that engages children's sense of smell. Natalia is also CEO and co-founder of Wicked, which is a global network of specially trained researchers to match scientists with ethical edtech and enable properly evidence-driven edtech products. She's also the author of The Future of the Self, Understanding Personalization in Childhood and Beyond. Hi, Natalia. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. Good. It's- Brilliant. Uh, good. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to meet you. It's, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. Full transparency, let's say, before we start, given your background and amazing work in edtech. I wouldn't say I was in a tech utopian or evangelist. I I have definite (laughs) skepticism around some of the tech issues and questions that it's raising, particularly now with advanced AI and all of those things. So I'm really hoping we can, you know, explore some of that territory. But Mm. perhaps we can start just to give a sense of what your work is. As I've understood, you really kind of have as an obviously an academic first, early years specialist, but also you've kind of positioned yourself somewhere in the middle of this crazy ecosystem of ed tech startups, entrepreneurs, big tech companies, schools, big education organizations, research organizations. There's a huge kind of mix of things going on there and not very much coordination often. And I, you've called, I saw you kind of providing a matchmaking service somehow to, to help people navigate that crazy landscape. So yeah, perhaps you could just start a little, just with a bit of an overview. How do you see that landscape? of technology in relation to education and what you know where do you see your role in that thanks that's a nice question tim and i'm very pleased to be part of this podcast i have to say that the reason i discovered you was because of professor alison clark and her mosaic approach uh-huh. that you covered amazing i love it yeah like slow pedagogies and oh it's brilliant exactly yeah. yeah and it kind of connects to your question because you know professor alison clark and so many other academics have been looking at how we can have meaningful approaches to education, how we can support children's development in innovative ways. And then the technology sort of came and is scaling approaches that are not necessarily always integrating the science of learning. So I guess after I have seen quite a few examples where I wish there was more of an integration with the science of learning, I thought, well, what can be done about it? And this is something that needs a systematic approach. It needs to take the whole sector working together. So 
I thought that, okay, maybe the network of people that I'm connected to can grow with other networks and you can sort of build a community of people around a shared vision for better edtech, so better educational technologies. And that is something that uh, we have built on and are growing organically uh, within the social enterprise wicket. Yeah, fantastic. And the wicket is, as I just so people understand, so it's a social enterprise, but also connected to the university. So it's kind of an academic institute. Well, it's co-funded by the University of Stavanger. So we are based Mm -hmm. in Norway, although the different ethnic organizations are based in different countries. So we work globally. And it's a network of learning scientists and specially trained edtech researchers. So people who sort of are bilingual in both the edtech business side and the research side, which is not always easy, (laughs) you know, combining the two different hats. And the idea is really to make sure that we can have more research-based educational technologies from design to implementation towards validation. Excellent. Yeah, that's so good. And it actually makes me think of a previous episode I did with Anna and Leila from OECD with the Schools Plus Network. And that part of that, I think, again, it's trying to answer that question of why is the research and the practice and the theory and, you know, the, and the business not all more joined up and, and informing each other for the benefit of the learning and the young people ultimately. But often they seem to be working, yeah, not in harmony, but sometimes against each other. Yeah, no, it's a very valid point. And I guess one way of understanding that challenge has been to say that there is a mismatch between the incentives. So the incentives that tech founders or developers have, often when they seek investments from VCs and, you know, LPs who are not necessarily caring about impact, then they'll be pushed for return on investment and big scale and growth which doesn't sit well with education, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, So educational technology is a technology that's a different beast from, say, fintech or health tech, and uh, we need to build the whole ecosystem differently. Yeah. Yeah, and I I did want to ask you about that because I I think that's a huge part of the challenge is the perverse incentives, you know, potentially in somewhat opposing directions. I mean, just related to things like how quickly you know, an edtech startup will want to or need to get into the market and to start generating revenue. And, you know, you've got all of those incentives around the business. As you said, I like the idea that it's a language. You're kind of learning that language because, you you know, that's a reality. If you you want to do mm. business, you, you need to be able to survive in that space. It's not philanthropy. It's not charity. It's, you know, you've got to be able to be profitable in some shape or form in that context. But at the same time, you're also relating it to what's best for the young people and that you know that can sound a little bit idealistic often can't it I mean it's just everyone's there for the children of course we're all there for the children and everyone uses that line but at the same time fundamentally that is what education is about and obviously there are disagreements about what's good but I wonder where do you see the biggest challenges in terms of keeping that focus on the learning and on the impact really having positive generative healthy impacts around learning when some of those incentives might be pulling in different directions? That's such a good question. I mean, I don't have uh, the answer, but one of the sort of suggestions that I heard and that resonated with me is that we need to align the strong focus on return on investment in the edtech space with the focus on return on education or return on learning and return on community. So developing impact metrics around the success of edtech 
that are aligned more with the broader educational goals. And um, that means looking at aspects such as the UNESCO SDGs, you know, thinking about the bigger picture that ETA can be addressing. But that is a uh, sector level challenge, right? It's something that really needs to bring together several stakeholders working together. So not only the investors and tech founders, very often they are sort of portrayed in these very negative colors, but it is also the people who are making purchasing decisions, you know, like procurement teams, knowing what to look for and what to incentivize as we are downloading different apps for our children, you know, also us as parents and teachers, we all need to work together with a joint language around impact. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's there's a couple of things there I'd love to pick up on. The, there's the time scale thing, which I think is an interesting one. So like mm-hmm. your, your idea of, I like that return on community or, you know, there's broader, because we know that, you know, the neoliberal economics is very, very good at externalizing all of these other things that it doesn't really want to care about. It just wants to focus on the profit, right? And so I really like that idea of how do we factor in some of these other values sets that we might we care about but also there's that point about the timeline because i think sometimes we particularly with the tech there's a time scale around technology that is so fast and getting faster right you know all of the jokes Mm. about ai and how you know just quickly it's moving and it's almost like faster is just better right and i wonder if like is there something there around have you seen any i don't know good examples where maybe investors are allowing for a slower growth or a slower kind of implementation so that, yes, they might still be getting the return, but also just they're allowing some space and taking some, allowing time for it to, to that return to come over a longer period, which may allow more learning to happen. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, time is really a crucial factor here because, you know, in education, especially in educational investments, if you don't have the long-term vision, then you are probably not the right investor for this space because you misunderstood that learning is an ongoing process and things will be developing. And one thing that works in a specific context for a specific student is unlikely to scale to millions with the exactly same solution, right? Yeah. So. It's a different type of incentivizing the the impact piece. And I guess one reason that we are seeing uh, this mismatch between the expectation of what ETEC could be doing and what currently a lot of the solutions are not doing is due to the fact that we had this huge acceleration of the technology, right? So it was so much focused on how to accelerate access to technology from the start so that everyone has a laptop, everyone has access to the internet, and everyone has a specific app. And um, we ended up with a situation where you have the big players who own a lot of that market and who sort of dictate their own terms. And then it's really not technology on our terms, as UNESCO said in their report very clearly last year. So to turn that situation around is a huge undertaking where I think we really need to bring the big tech to the table. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. And I mean, that's, I have to say, that's where my cynicism also kicks in because of things Mm. like the 21st Century Skills Coalition with all of the big tech companies. And, you know, there's been, there's such a deep profit motivation in those big tech companies, obviously by definition, right? And that perhaps... You know, this is a cynical framing of it, I guess, but the, the perhaps the whole language around 21st century skills has been 
generated in order to create and the next generation of consumers in our young people because then we're getting microsoft laptops into the schools or we're getting apple devices and you know it's just you just then end up inculcating these young people into this relationship with a commodity and with a company through that whole narrative around the types of skills that need to be learned for the future so it's it's an incredibly complex issue i think but i that yeah i i do get a bit cynical when i so let's be positive about it as you say bringing the big tech companies to the table to have those conversations mm-hmm. clearly has to be a big part of the what's happening because they've got such huge huge influence i guess on the sector yeah i think it's partly because they hold the infrastructure now so if you look at google chromebooks and how many schools yeah. they are and if you think about microsoft suite that comes with teams and that comes with a new reading coach and the open AI partnerships and all that, yeah. it's hard to resist it because it becomes so much part of the everyday and it facilitates a lot of the processes that correspond to the needs that schools have in terms of teacher shortage and so on. It becomes more and more difficult to resist the narrative that is put forward by these big tech, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I wonder, I also wanted to pick up on what you're saying about information, because I think it's, as you said, for parents, it's so difficult to navigate. I mean, you know, as a parent myself, thinking about device access for my children and all of those kinds of things. And then as an educator, it's so difficult to find information and understand that because there's so much of it and there's so much counter narrative narrative about what we should be trusting in relation to reliable sources. So I suppose, I mean, is that part of the role of Wicket as you're working to try and help people navigate some of that information landscape? That's a good question. I guess specifically in Wicked, we are just trying to uh, join forces with others who are part of this so-called tech evidence movement, where greater emphasis is placed on thoughtful documentation of evidence of, of different companies. I mean, there is a lot of interest in different badging and certification of edtech so that it makes it easier for parents and teachers to select different technologies. But unfortunately, if you leave it to the neoliberal economy, then you might end up with a system where evidence and research can be simply commissioned by companies that may not have the best intentions and by researchers who might not have the best intentions. Same for certifications and different badges. So ideally, there would be organizations that transparently can communicate together with the companies about what is it that is necessary for evidence, work with them to develop this sort of evidence mindset so that they understand that research is an ongoing process. It's not something where you just stick off a box or put a badge on your website and you are done, you know, and to transparently share not only what works, but also what doesn't work. You know, it's the the skeptic in me, I sort of awaken when I hear only about positive research of a company and never any sort of negative results. So I think it's as a sector needs a lot of professional development in in research. But also, I think we need to turn the mirror back to the researchers so that we don't sit in our ivory towers and only complain how bad the technology is, but also try to do something about it. So it's a um, two-way street, right? Bring the two together.
No, it's true. And I think that's a really good point because there is that, in a way, it's easier to sit on the sidelines and criticize, right? It's much more difficult to collaborate, get your hands dirty and actually try and help to, you know, make that reality of the bit, the market that is moving in the way that it moves, making that better. So yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that word evidence is definitely something I wanted to ask you about because it is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, you know, you must see it everywhere in your work. I see it everywhere, just across education, that everything's evidence-based now. It's almost like it's a mandatory statement on everything just to Mm. show that we've done our due diligence, we've researched this, and we can claim legitimately that this has an evidence base. But we all know there are many ways or many different strengths of what that evidence might be. So maybe could you just say a little bit about what do you understand by almost the different levels or strengths of that word evidence? Like what could it look like if it was really robust, like genuinely robust? And and then also what does it look like when some people are actually just claiming to be evidence-based, but it's very flimsy and superficial? Yeah, that's a nice uh, way of sort of articulating to think about it as the bad evidence and the good evidence. Because one concept that colleagues and I borrowed from the learning sciences was around the weight of evidence. So, you know, thinking about how rigorous a study was to count as a proof of something that it works. And in there, there are actually established procedures for how to evaluate the weight of evidence. You know, you can be looking at effect sizes, you can be looking at the internal and external validity of a study, was the research question phrased in a way that it could be answered with these specific methodologies, was there any bias, what was the attrition rate, how was the randomization done. So there are many questions, almost like a checklist you can have to find out how good the evidence is, you know, how strong is the evidence. I guess the question that emerges then is who says so, you know, is it just a qualified researcher or could it be teachers who also have their view on evidence? How do you combine the two viewpoints? And indeed, how do you include the children's voices into this? Because if we only sort of leave the um, decision making around evidence to researchers, you can quickly end up with a very hierarchical model where you have some voices that really need to be included in that process. So, yeah, it's, it is, it's, uh, it's, it's a, not that easy to answer. It's that, not, is it? It's a big nest of, of all sorts because, you, I mean, just in what you're saying there, you've got you've got culture differently, you know, different biases towards particular places in which that research was done. So you've got kind of cultural dynamics, you've got contextual, very specific contextual dynamics. And, uh, you know, like uh, what what you're saying there about kind of teacher expertise and really taking that seriously in the evidencing process, because Mm -hmm. they're ultimately the use, the people using these platforms or pieces of software or apps or whatever devices they understand in their context how is this working and it's so easy to just blame the teachers for not using it correctly or you know it, but actually that's that's what those tools those devices etc should be serving the praxis of the teacher right you know the theory informed yes, practical yes. action of that teacher in the classroom not the other way around and mm, so there's mm. a there's an interesting piece there about how do we really take the teacher's perspective on it seriously because they understand the context they're working in which is different to the school down the road which is different to the you know the home educator in another country or you know there's so many different possible places where these things are being used yeah it's a complex topic I I wondered I mean also what's the role of independent verification in that so you know who I mean the first thing to say is all of this stuff that we're talking about takes time so that kind of comes back to our our point about just it not being rushed because as soon as as soon as there's a time constraint 
you're going to move quickly through these and you know not take them as seriously as you could in terms mm-hmm. of that process mm-hmm. of gathering the evidence and analyzing the evidence but you've also got this impartiality and as we've said the kind of vested interests of the tech company of course they're going to want the evidence to show that the, the, mm-hmm. the thing works and so where what's the role for independent verification somehow like for example who would do that and in a way that is again like you said not commodifiable and you can't just kind of game that system with just a bunch of money buying certification or whatever yeah, I think it also needs some discussion around how we define the independence as well, you know, because yeah. if you think about the whole evaluation being based on, say, independent auditing, where we are sort of verifying at the quality according to some, say, shared criteria that we all agree on, then I guess we can also agree on that we want to have the reassurance that the people carrying out these reviews were not paid to do positive reviews, yeah. but that they, you know, they are critical thinkers and they do it properly. I would say though, and very much based on my own experience, that if we push too much um, down the line of you are the bad guy and here are these independent auditors who are going to prove how bad you are, that is not going to change the status quo that we are seeing in the system now. Yeah. So to me, having a dialogue with the companies and sort of transparently sharing that, look, this is what you are not doing very well. This is what you can can do about it. Like, you know, constructive feedback that works much better in terms of trying to elevate the good work that is being done and improving on it. Mm. Because very often it's about incremental changes, you know, unless you get like this big technology that is completely new, say generative AI that is a transformation and then the follow-up technologies will be adding these small incremental additions. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's important that we encourage both the companies and people working with the different companies to think about the verification of their evidence as something that is part of an ongoing process of building their evidence portfolio. And that is not something that can be verified once, but rather is something that's, it should be an open book, right? Mm. Something where everyone can have access to and see what is happening and contribute some pieces of evidence, perhaps discuss some pieces of evidence. And arguably, if you have that sort of community approach, then it will be a technology that's aligned with the community needs and preferences so to me that is the um preferred way to go yeah that no that's a fascinating idea some kind of open democratic process where yeah you've got transparency and sharing of as you say the things that are working and as well as the things that aren't working and where things are growing but i guess the uh, again the market incentives don't encourage that kind of approach do they in terms of you know keeping secrets and patenting and corporate espionage and all of those things yeah yeah and you know the thing is we all make mistakes but the question is what do you make about the mistakes right but if we build this culture that um, people have these heightened expectations and we only report the best results all the time then it's Mm. not going to encourage the transparency yeah absolutely and i suppose almost at the kind of meta level you've got this you're trapped in somewhat of a measurement paradigm anyway right because you can only evidence based on or in that paradigm you can only evidence based on what is possible to measure and what is possible to measure is is only a very narrow slice of the things that are going on Hmm. in learning right so as you said these kind of returns on community or these returns on these much much larger more generative topics it's very difficult to do that if we're using this 
we're trying to really lean into this much more rigorous and kind of strong evidence base that very much prioritizes or demands a very particular and narrow articulation of the thing that you're looking for, the outcome you're looking for, how it's going to be measured, how we'll know when it's changed, you know, all of that much more objective inadvertent commas framing yeah. really yeah. traps us somehow in, in in a particular narrative i think yeah although i think one little thing that i would perhaps encourage us to think about is that we don't necessarily need to define evidence in quantitative terms you know the science of learning is advocating very much for methodological plurality so including both qualitative and quantitative studies when understanding how something works so rather than thinking that evidence means a number, <laughs> evidence yeah. uh, can mean also, say, a very good series of interviews that were conducted with teachers in the classroom and that have been deeply analyzed, reflected upon and interpreted with a strong theoretical framework. Right. Yeah. So there are criteria for uh, weight of evidence also in qualitative research. And there are, of course, uh, many, many peer-reviewed studies on how to run um, rigorous qualitative research. So I guess the more we discuss this need for multiple pieces of evidence that are necessary in a portfolio, the more we include the voices of other members of the community as well. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And actually, it relates probably to that. I wanted to ask you about that idea of kind of more standardized assessments versus more unique impact based assessments that a particular ed tech company might do, because in a way, we're talking a bit more about the standardized models of, you know, these kind of larger quantitative definitions mm. of what evidence is in some ways and you know i don't know all of the names but you know the the big organizations that would provide the standards for the industry that you would have to adhere to as an tech mm -hmm. company but the, as you're saying there the qualitative aspect brings in this other way of doing it which is much more unique and personalized to the specific company product experience context all of those things yeah, I guess the way I think about it is that when it comes to impact reporting and impact development, people often talk about impact metrics, right? Yeah. Now, these, these metrics can be standardized in the sense that it's the same thing we measure in each company, or they can be individualized to the company. So say that we have a literacy app and we'll be looking at children's increase in reading. So we can use a standardized measure, which is the same measure that for example, PISA uses when they run their reading comprehension tests, or you develop a measure that is only applicable, only usable with this specific reading platform. Yeah. So you handpick a measure that works for that, right? So then you are looking at standardized versus non-standardized measures, and both will be looking at the proof that the technology works. And I guess the difficulty is that if you have these hand-picked measures that are only available for a specific technology, then it's very hard to compare them with anything because you don't really have the benchmark other than the technology itself. So the more consolidation we can see in the field happening, the better for aligning these different metrics and really establishing some benchmarks that can allow us to make bigger claims about how the technology works or doesn't work so hopefully that is something we'll be seeing more and more yeah interesting it, it always 
Dylan Williams phrase about everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere always rings in my ears. <laughs> you know, it's like there's always proof that some, you know, it will work somewhere, but it, nothing's going to work everywhere. So there's this, there's, there's, there's got to be a role for, yeah, really looking at context. I mean, I've been having mm. lots of conversations mm. really recently about, about context and how do we genuinely take that seriously? And how does technology take context seriously? Because that's one of, I think for me, that's one of the reasons I'm so skeptical about technology is that it's it's a weaponized version of decontextualizing in some ways, <laughs> right? It's like, it's a perfect way of taking information just out of context and moving it around the world in seconds. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting device for that, which is a, yeah. No, it's, it's a funny way how you phrase it. But, you know, it's interesting for me as I'm sort of looking behind the scenes of many different organizations and how they formulate their impact statements and all that, that very often it is right at the beginning stages of their logic modeling where there are some missing bits, you know, like assumptions being made about this huge impact on the entire world, a bit like you were saying, you know, that yeah. you were able to helicopter a solution to anywhere in the world and it yeah. will work. I guess that is where we need to be a little bit more careful, especially with startups that often have the mentality that they are reinventing the whole education system with their app or solution and scale very quickly without necessarily looking deeply at what others have done and what mistakes yeah. others have made and and also at the literature you know with my um, researcher had i'm really pushing for more research-based theories of change or, or logic models i mean it sounds very simple right you just sort of have this assumption that here is your input and that will be the output and over time we will have this impact but very few companies actually anchor that in some published research papers that they read and understood, right? So yeah. if we sort of nurture more of that criticality and I guess desire to engage with published work, then hopefully that can be another way of addressing the problem. That yeah, you yeah, mm. it's true. It, it's so difficult for me because I think when I hear you talking about logic models and input output impact, <laughs> it's so kind of resonant of this very linear Newtonian way of living yeah. and being and <laughs> that I think has caused so many problems. Obviously, it's done amazing, amazing good in the world in terms of systematic approaches, technology, solutions to many, many problems. But it's also done a huge amount of damage. And I that's one of the really kind of big problems and questions I have around technologies because it's it's fundamentally based on that kind of logic model, almost by definition. And And how do we find a different logic model that might be more generative to community and planet and you know all of those important things yeah i guess part of me agrees with you and part um disagrees and the disagreeing part is that when you're sort of tracing these different assumptions of something that it can work or that you know we have this hypothesis that it could work the linearity doesn't need to be there you know very often when wicked researchers produce logic models with the companies we end up with different cycles and 3d models you know that is a good theory of change in my definition in the sense that you really look at what was done before and that allows you then to see the many connections there rather than to think about this one path that either either mm. succeeds or fails right yeah so Maybe there is also some work to be done in terms of understanding together with the companies how we can embed research more clearly into their models right from the start. 
because often technologies are built and then researchers are called in a bit ad hoc, you know, can you just yeah. sort of endorse my product or tell sure. me one thing and, and that will sort of fix it. So this sort of ongoing dialogue is important. And it's funny because so how quickly we saw that, uh, you know, AI was integrated into so many technologies, but somehow we struggled to integrate so quickly science into the technologies, right? Yeah. So yeah. working with more accelerators and different venture studios and people who can nurture the new generation of techs. That might be one way yeah. of yeah, no, that's good pipeline. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and that's what I was going to say. Actually, I wonder is there a role for not just scientific or, for example, educational research, but actually broader, more like values-based research or human research from the humanities about what it means to be human and how do we, you know, how do we augment? And it sounds quite disconnected, and maybe it does. Maybe you know, someone working in an edtech company would think, well, that's got nothing to do with the thing that we're doing here, but that's my challenge with it is I think it's got everything to do with what they're doing there because those tools become the means by which we navigate the world or we you know we develop our skills in the world and it's it's a huge part of that but it's somehow I don't know how to connect that into the conversation would be an interesting question. I totally agree and and you really speak to my heart here because you know as a scholar I've been writing so much about the relationality within technology and that you know human is at the center the child is always at the center so how do we design uh, with that kind of idea in mind and it's hard to have that kind of understanding of the world if you like or the the sort of value system in you and then be thrown into this very high-paced investor focused (laughs) impact modeling right so how do you marry the two yeah I have chosen to sort of try to find a balance between the two, but I know that it's not easy for many people. They tend to go either one way or the other. And often if you try to find a balance, you end up having a conflict there or a conflict there. Right? Sure. But I think many of the developers feel the same way that, you know, they want to create good and there is a whole uh, set of studies and technologies tech for good or tech yeah. for humanity, you of know, course. different kinds of thinking. No, I I really appreciate that because I think I mean it's you know it's very easy to caricature the edtech entrepreneur as a kind of profit oriented sociopath, right? I mean it's this is not what you know it's not what's going on, right? There's good people trying to genuinely develop solutions for learning and education as they see it. I think for me, obviously, there are some less honourable intentions mixed in with there as well. But I I think the the larger question is almost. There are such inbuilt assumptions about, like as you were saying, that you know the things around what it means to be a self and a person and a human in this, you know, in the face of AI and all these things. That those are some of the questions that I think we need to kind of keep bringing to the surface, so that people become a little bit more aware of some of the assumptions and biases they're just holding as a product of, for example, going through a you know a Eurocentric Western education or, or whatever it might be. But you know we. We develop a whole bunch of of assumptions there that I think need quite a lot of them need to be challenged right now because mm. things are heading in interesting, challenging ways for our species. <laughs> you are so right. And, you know, I think it's absolutely fine to resist a lot of this digitization happening. You know, we really don't need to replace every single activity with a digital activity. There is a lot that can be done without technologies, and that is how it should be and it should remain. So I'm I'm with you on this one. Yeah. Can I just, I mean, I'd love to just finish just by asking you, because you've written this amazing book called The Future of the Self, Understanding Personalization in Childhood and Beyond. 
and as an early years specialist i mean you know this this kind of almost you know the kind of romantic in me there's nothing purer than the very young children in relation to learning and education that it's, it's really where they're just learning how to be in the world right and it's there's something very important happening there and then obviously then you bring technology in and how early are you bringing technology in and all those kinds of questions I just wanted to finish by asking you, uh, this is a big question, I know, so feel free to take it in whatever direction. But we've talked a lot about the processes, I suppose, around the tech ecosystem, but actually, like substantively, what do you think about the role of and the impact of technology on learning for young people in terms of health and mental health? And actually, you know, for example, my previous guest on the podcast, Jared Cooney Horvath, is is absolutely damning that the edtech revolution has completely failed and there's no evidence that it supports learning. In fact, it harms learning. And, you know, this is a very particular perspective. But I just, yeah, I would love to finish just asking you about that. Where do you think there is, let's say, robust evidence to suggest that there are some advantages for the, the technology in learning? Oh, that's a big question. It is, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, and you made several uh, points as you were asking it, so my head is buzzing with possible answers. A quick one on, on the note of the lack of evidence is that, you know, there are many reports showing that. So it's not only your previous guest. It is really the case that most popular technologies that are out there are not evidence-based and very often they have neutral or negative impact. Okay. So the question is, how can we mobilize the pockets of good evidence, use it as a model for turning the situation around. And that has been the motivation behind my work with digital books, for example. So using digital books with young children where they can add value. So we've been looking at contexts where you have families who are on the move, whether it is because of various health reasons, could be a war or conflict reason. Yeah. How can the accessibility of the technology in terms of diversity of content that you can offer um, digitally, how can that be made better and better? But the sort of other part of your question was a little bit about where are we heading with this and what does it mean for young children? Yeah. And in the book, I was trying to send a word of caution that you've been alluding to earlier in terms of, you know, this is such an um, accelerated time that we live in. A lot of decision making is based on data and we push for data in young children's lives more and more with Every single picture you take of your child, that's data that is going yeah. somewhere. So I guess not advocating for just sort of stopping and jumping off the bandwagon, but rather thinking carefully about what we all do with technologies. So yeah. modeling good practice as parents, teachers, developers, researchers, I think it's very important. And I hope it's the sort of community approach that can move the needle in the ethics space. Yeah, no, that's great. And it, uh, the, there seems to be an, a wave of more and more schools just going flat out banning technology in the classroom. And that's, so that's an interesting, I mean, not everywhere, obviously, but there is, I've noticed a few instances where that's happening more and more, mobile phones or laptops or just getting it out of the classroom. I wonder, what's your views on that? I mean, it's that kind of black and white thinking that is not, in my view, always helpful because, you know, extremes might not always lead to an optimal solution long term. So I'm personally not in favor of banning technologies, but rather making sure that we think about situations where they are most helpful and managing their use together with children, so developing their own criticality around it. 
That said, there will be situations where it's better not to have the technology. And I believe if it's done in conversation with the young people, many of them are very discerned users. (laughs) So, you know, adults should be having conversations with them so that it's really technology on their terms, on the children's terms as well. Hmm. That's great. And that's, I mean, that's a really good place to finish because I think we can sometimes get drawn into a place where we we don't take their views seriously because we think they're not capable of making sensible or informed decisions about the way or healthy decisions about the way they use the technology. Because I think there's a there's a nuance there that you're also trying to model about understanding and mature decision making and all of those things, which it's very difficult to do when you've just removed them from the picture, removed the devices, not the children. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, beautiful thank you natalia such an interesting conversation i'd really recommend people go and read your book because i think that the personalization piece which we haven't really talked about but there's so much in there i think is really fascinating about the way things are going becoming more and more personalized and what does that mean for our identities and our sense of self i think Mm. there's a huge amount of amazing stuff there which uh, yeah maybe in future time we'll talk about again but thank you so much for your time thank you tim i appreciate it thank you We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to continue the dialogues with our guests, with us on our blog or on social media, or within your own networks.